I remember he came to me in Cujo and he said, you know, Dee, that scene where Danny loses it and then you lose it and say, oh, I'm going to your father. He said, you know, we saw that in the dailies. We think maybe it's too much. We think we should cut it, that the audience won't like you. Could you come look at it? And I went and looked at it and I looked at Dan and I said, Dan, if you cut that scene, you're crazy. There is not a parent in the world that has not felt that, maybe not acted on it, but there's not a parent that has not felt that emotion. And do you know, he listened and he kept it in. And that was one of the scenes that was most talked about by the critics. Hello, and welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. There's an old adage that says, never meet your heroes. I'd like to make an amendment to that phrase and change it to never meet your heroes unless they work in the horror genre. I have had the great privilege to have friendships and work with most of my heroes in the world of horror cinema. And though I cherish all of those friends and colleagues, there is no one who has made a bigger impact on my life and career than Dee Wallace. Anyone listening to Spill Your Guts is likely a fan of Dee's vast and astonishing body of work. From the game-changing Steven Spielberg blockbuster E.T., where she plays the lovable and entirely authentic single mother of two boys who encounter you-know-who, to lead roles in smash-hit horror films like Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes, Joe Dante's The Howling, and Stephen Herrick's Critters. The film that made me fall for D and boy did I fall hard, was Louis Teague's film adaptation of Stephen King's Cujo. In an Oscar-worthy performance, D plays Donna Trenton, a mother who must protect her child from a rabid St. Bernard. Almost half of the film features Dee trapped in a Ford Pinto, and it is some of the most harrowing work ever put on film. It is no wonder that Stephen King himself has said that Dee's performance is his favorite of all the performances in film or television based on a character he wrote. And that's just scratching the surface of Dee's career, which spans over 250 film and television roles, including work with genre legends Peter Jackson in The Frighteners, and an ongoing collaboration with Rob Zombie. However, it isn't just Dee's tireless work ethic and standout performances that make her so special. It's also a lot to do with the quality of person that she is. You will never meet a more genuine, sincere, funny, caring, and generous person than Dee Wallace. Dee and I talk on her early years as a girl in Kansas who dreamed of being on the stage. How she has always managed to persevere despite an inordinate amount of loss and hardship. The exhaustive and exhilarating lengths she will go to embody a character. We also discuss her healing work and the incredible impact it has had on many people, both through her speaking engagements and her books. Oh, and we also play a fun game. Though she has played many dark characters, Dee is a bright, shining light, so sit back and prepare to be inspired. Hi, Dee. Hi, Kev. How are you? I'm awesome. You're awesome. I'm a little awesome. creating fool here. Well, let's look at the beginning of, of your career in horror, oh, which was okay. The, hill, the Hills Have Eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got this. The Hills Have Eyes, 1977. The film was directed by Wes Craven and has, of course, gone on to become a cult classic. 
of course. Um, do you remember how you booked the role, how you got the part in the film? I auditioned for it. Just traditional audition? Yeah. Um, actually, somebody had come to my acting studio uh, with Charles Conrad, and we had put on a scene night. And I got cast in a... Here's the dichotomy again. I got cast in the religious film. And then somebody else saw me and brought me in for the Hills Have Eyes. And I was cast in that. So, I don't <laughs> yep. know. God and horror are a theme in my life. Yeah. <laughs> and there's like over here is baby Jesus. And over here is like blood and death and gruesome horror. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it is, a, there is a, an interesting. interesting theme there. Yeah. Someone smarter than me could look into that and figure out what that is, but, but I'll leave that to them. Um, that was, so this was, Hills Have Eyes was your first horror film. And it was interesting because I went and looked at the, the, the script that's available at least for, for the film. And you know, it's, it's a pretty, to, to this day, the Hills Have Eyes is a pretty extreme movie. You know, like there's, yeah. it's beyond violence. There's, you know, violence to animals and th there's a child in peril. There's sexual assault. There's all these things. Do you remember reading the script and thinking, am I, do I want to do this? Like, did you have any reservations? No. No. I read the script and went, oh, it's a big part. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the beginning of your career, you're just trying to get projects. You know, you're yeah. trying to get credits for your resume. You're trying to get film for your reel. Yeah. So, I mean, that might make me sound small, but no, I read it and went, oh, this is going to be a really intense hard and i yeah you know, i i read it and i just knew her i just knew her the minute i read her so well there's there is a, a thematic thing in and in, in, in role and some of the roles that you've played of you know beyond the the obvious one of playing a mother but just this notion of a, a figure who's who's a protective energy who's a yeah. who, who if that energy if that protective force is compromised then we know that the people are really in peril. And in The Hills Have Eyes, when your character is killed, we really get the sense between the death of the father and the death of your character that now they're in real trouble because the two people in the family unit that we look to and think, oh, those are the two that, that'll keep them safest are killed. Um, yeah. And that must have been, you know, as a young actress, something where you're going, wow, this character really matters. And that's, you know, that's exciting when you're, when you're approached, when yeah. you're approaching a project. Well, absolutely. And, you know, what rocks my boat, Kevin, is to be able to play a big arc. I love, I am blessed probably because of all the trauma in my childhood with a really full emotional life. So I love to do projects where I can play that big arc of emotion. And the horror genre just is the one that gives you the most to play, right? So uh, I looked at The Hills Have Eyes as, as an emotional journey uh, of a mother through the safety of her family and her and her child. You know, I, yeah, I never look yeah. at things as horror films. No, and I think once people, you know, it's that thing that for me as, you know, as a director and you talk with actors and you know as a director that it's important that for actors, that the minute you start kind of 
putting your character into a place where there's judgment or there's some kind of thing where you're looking at them through that lens, you know, that can be a, a really troublesome path to go down with your character, you know, where, like, I always feel like, you know, when you see an actor play a villain, you can tell they're trying to play a villain. It's like, you, I don't, you know, that can't work. You can't, you can't play the play. I'm the bad guy. You have to play that person as though they believe they're the hero of the piece. You have to play them around what they're driven to get. What do I have to get? Right. What do I have? What's my, what's my goal? Is, is my goal just to live? Is my goal to take out the people that need to live? You know, you, you have to be clear about what drives you. Right. And um, this was pretty early in, in you know, uh, Wes Craven's career. What was your experience like working with a young Wes Craven? I, I really liked working with Wes. And it's weird. I don't have a lot of memories of him. I just remember him being very quiet and calm on the set, which is always greatly appreciated on any kind of film that you're doing. Um, you know, this, he'd been a college professor not long before he stepped into this. And that doesn't surprise me at all. I met Wes once and he had that vibe about him. He, he was such a, almost a stoicism. He was very gentle and quiet and sincere, but he, but there was this, yeah, I, that totally, it's interesting though, that he was like that even at a young age, because I met him when he was an older person. But, you know, I, again, it was years ago, but I, I don't have vivid memories of being on the set with Wes. And I wish I, I did, but I, I mean, I have, incredibly vivid memories of Blake Edwards and Joe Dante and Louis Teague and of course Spielberg and and cert- certainly Rob Zombie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But um I just I remember him fondly and I don't remember him vividly. Interesting. I was reading that um Wes Craven at one point talked about how there was a discussion on the set of the film about killing off the baby, the infant in the story, and that the cast and crew threatened to walk if he went that route. Do you recall that happening? Not at all. (laughs) I wish I could help you out there, Kev. It might not be true. Again, the internet lies. I remember the discussion about killing Danny Pintaro at the end of Cujo. And I said, yeah, and like in the book, crazy. you are crazy if you do that. And yeah, and they everybody seemed to agree. So <laughs> yeah, including Stephen King. So you don't remember that. OK, uh, one thing I was thinking watching the movie to prepare for this interview was how freaking unpleasant it looks like it was as a shoot. It looks hot. It looks rough. Yeah. So I'm guessing it was like a pretty rough and right. That spider Oh my God, I could never do that scene that you had with that. Yeah. Mm -mm. And they told Mm -mm. me, I said, Mm -mm. okay, you guys, tarantulas can't hurt you. Oh no, Dee, they're harmless. (laughs) They lied. (laughs) Well, and then after I did it, I found out that 
They don't bite you if you milk them. So they milked them right before the scene. I didn't even know you could milk a spider. You learn something new every day. (laughs) (laughs) You can milk a spider. Okay. Who had had that job on set? I just picture someone sitting there, little spider teeth, just sort of. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know, but I would guess. And I hope they got a. I hope they got a credit. And then you know we had one trailer. For all of us. Oh my so we God. All one hang trailer. Out wow. One trailer, and one night in the middle of the night, the bathroom broke, so nobody could go to the bathroom. Oh no. I mean, it was, it was challenging. It, you I know, bet. We were dying of the heat during the day and freezing at night because it's the desert, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, I sat a lot in my car on that. <laughs> And it's funny, I also, though. you know, that the Mojave Desert is, it was like within three miles of where SAG insists that they have to put you up back then. Oh, no, really? <laughs> and the third, the third day uh, morning that I came home, Chris, my husband looked at me and he, he went, no, you've got to get a room down there. This is too dangerous. It's too dangerous for you. So I spent a lot of my scale salary. um, Uh, On a hotel room. (laughs) Paying for a, well, a cheap motel. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But it's great when you go back and watch the movie, because one of the things I noticed about it is there's some really great uh, work with it from the cast. Like Michael Barron in particular is kind of a scene stealer and he's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Robert Houston, who plays uh, the younger brother, Bobby, sort of, he's pretty great. Um, do you have any particular memories of the cast and working with that cast? Oh, we had fun. Look, we had to have fun and we had to support each other. Susan Lanier and I, we, we had some good giggle fests <laughs> while we were doing that. But you, we literally had to be there for each other because the shoot was just hard. Yeah. You know? So the more fun you could have with it, the the better off the project was gonna be. Yeah, I mean and when like you you've got that like that scene with the the attack on the family where your character is killed. I mean it's brutal. Like when you're doing stuff like that, I imagine it can get pretty somber if you don't have fun in between. Is that you know, is that is that part of do you, do you, are you mindful of that when you're shooting a film like that? Of like, I've got to make sure that in between when I'm not working that I can depressurize a bit. Well, that's a good question. I am now. Right. In the beginning, not so much. In the beginning, you know, it was all this method shit and I have to stay. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have to stay in my character or I might not get back into her, for, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, when I did 10... <clears throat> Years later, I was talking to my mom about this. And she said, wait here, honey. And she went back and brought out some letters that I had written to her during 10. I did not write. Mary Lewis wrote them. She said, I want you to read this because I read it and I went, Oh, my daughter's way far too into the character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and as she's an gone. herself, she knew how to identify that, you know? Yeah, 
for sure. That's great. Um, well, let's let's move on to the, your next uh, genre outing, which would be The Howling in 1981. D plays reporter Karen White, and the film was directed by Joe Dante. It has gone on to become a cult classic. Yep. I love The Howling. I think a lot of people. Oh, I adore love the, the Howling. I think, How can you not love The Howling? Yeah, the, Come on. Yeah, I mean, and I know lots of people love the Howling that aren't necessarily like genre, you know, geeks like I am. Like a lot of people like the Howling. Well, yeah, um, it's just a really good horror film, and it's a I think clever, it's just a good movie. Clever, it's just it's a good, a, like it's yeah, yeah, and it's wonderfully directed by the great Joe Dante. Yeah. Um, and it's great to I watched the movie for the first time not uh, just like a week ago with my husband and he hadn't seen it before. So it's really fun to get to share it, you know, some of these movies with, with him and, yeah. um, you what know, and, and we were, he loved it. Of yeah. course he did, but it was yeah. great. We were watching it. We were watching it. And I said, that's, that's Chris Stone. That that's D's husband. And he went, really? He said, how did they end up in the same movie? And I was like, I'm pretty sure that's not like a coincidence. I bet you D had some kind of hand in that, but I'll have to check with well, you. Well, it's a really great story because people think I got him hired and I didn't. Really? Uh, I had to go in and audition and they hired me. And then a couple of weeks later, Dan Blatt, our executive producer, love you, um, called me and he said, well, D, you know, We've got a really good cast to surround you. We're just having trouble finding a guy to play your husband. And I said, well, exactly what are you looking for? Like, I'm not a real blonde, Kevin. And he said, well, you know, somebody really virile that, that has this vulnerable, softer side. And I went, oh, my God, I'm engaged to him. And I'm looking <laughs> Right. But I knew, like, I put this all together within 30 seconds. If you say that, D, they're never going to hire him. Yeah, totally. So yeah. I said, you know, Dan, there's this guy I did chips with, Christopher Smith or Stone or some S name. Well, they went out and found him, brought him into audition. He got the part on his own. The next day, Dan calls and I answer the phone. He goes, D? And I said, hi, Dan. And he said, I'm sorry. I must. I must. Oh, he called Chris. I know that guy. We found him Uh, and we loved him and we hired him. And I called to talk to him and I went, no, you. You have the you right, got the right number. And, and there was this long pause, <laughs> and he goes, Oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> gonna so, on me, right? You didn't have nothing to do with it. You just oh. didn't, you didn't seal the deal, though. Chris sealed the deal, but you, you kind of helped get him in the room. Is that safe to say? I helped them find the actor they were looking for. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's the, yes. I like that's a better way to put it. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, and he absolutely do with it, but I didn't have anything to do with him getting hired. And the thing is, like, you watch him in the movie, and you're like, 
if he wasn't who he was to you in your personal, it wouldn't change anything about how wonderful he is in the film. No. Like, no. and that's the, that's the thing about it that I, that's so kind of wonderful and, about, about the you performance. Know, we work entirely different ways. Yeah. I was watching on the, on the, on the, on the, the movie, there's a, a special feature that interviewed you and you were talking about Chris having to say to you between six, just calm down, like relax a bit. And, and you'd be like, don't tell me relax. And I was like, that's so funny because that sounds like you guys had very sort of almost opposite processes oh, at, at how you approach through your Chris work. broke down everything. He studied the script. He figured out his beats. I don't work that way at all. I read right. the script and I, you know, and yeah. I, and the character gets inside of me and just the, the technique that I was taught, you get your energy way, way, way high. And then you throw all your energy onto the character or the werewolf or whatever that you're working with. And what that literally does, Kevin, is it opens up a channel. Right. And the character tells you what to do. It's amazing and fabulous, and I will love Charles Conrad forever for opening that window for me and teaching me that technique. But so we get to the bed scene with the big fight where he hits me. Where he smacks you, yeah. And Joe Dante says, well, I'm sure you guys worked this out last night. Let me see what you came up with. And Chris said, I'm sorry, my leading lady doesn't rehearse. <laughs> oh, is that true? You don't, you won't rehearse? Well, sure, I will rehearse, but I don't sit there and plan things. Right, yeah. Out. And Joe kind of looked at us and went, Oh, well, <laughs> all right, let's run it. And <laughs> so, D, you're trusting him not to hit you? I said, that fucker better not hit me. We're done. Right. So, you know, we did a rehearsal and just, my God, he said, we should have shot it. We should have just shot it. Right. Wow. Know? We had such a trust in each other. Yeah. And, and you can see it in them in the work in the film. You can you can feel it. You can see it. It's it's in it's in the little details of of the little yeah. moments between the characters. It's the things they don't say as much as what they do. Yeah, totally. You can yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's lovely. But, you know, it's really and it's really intimate work you and Chris did in that film, which I think yeah. to some people might seem not necessarily like it's it's in, integral to the horror genre but you know I, I i think it's wonderful when actors don't condescend to the material or, or the genre they're in and you guys certainly didn't do that well and i i think we all owe a lot of that to joe dante and his his vision of it you know all of the film clips and everything joe paid for himself that because the studios wouldn't opt up for the money and it Impressive, really right. does lift the whole project considerably. Um, yeah, you know, bringing in that humor and that that juxtaposition that he's so well, brilliant at. Uh, and Joe but, himself is like a huge genre buff, isn't he? Like, doesn't he just love yeah. genre films? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, the night when uh, Chris was doing his nude scene 
with the she-wolf, mm-hmm. Joe came to me the day before and he said, so, um, so, uh, Dee, I said, what, <laughs> what, Joe? He said, well, you know, the crew, the crew really loves both of you and it's a little awkward. I said, I'm not coming, Joe. I'm not coming. <laughs> I won't be there. Don't worry about it. I'm going yeah. in town with a friend and getting bombed. That's what I'm doing. So no, no, I'm I won't be there. So he comes in at four o'clock in the morning and I'm sitting there. <laughs> and he looked at me and started laughing. And he said, Hopper, it was nothing. Please, you Go know, to sleep. <laughs> I love you. Come on, we're going to bed. We're going to sleep. Yeah, get yeah. it. I mean, yeah. there were more demonstrative words in there. But <laughs> uh, yeah, that the whole shoot. You know, one of the moments I remember the most from the Howling was we were. It was the last night we were on the ranch, and we lost the generators. We had no lights, and oh, no. we had to get this establishing establishing shot of uh, the the barn and everything. Right. So you know what is, we is had? that is that when he's got the rifle and you go, and you are walking with him and you guys are kind of like fend, about to fend off your the werewolves. Is it that part? It's it's the big establishing shot. Right. Yeah. Barn. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. We all pulled up our cars and turned our car lights on, and that's how we lit that. bam there you go (laughs) and it was eerie and And it worked i mean you know you you just never know what your creativity is going to create you know yeah and like it was great listening to you um on the on the on the the blu-ray that the special features and, and there's you were talking about just the camaraderie on the shoot and sh- in uh, where was it? Where did you shoot Mendocino? Mendocino, California, Mendocino. Northern California. Yeah. And like, you can see in the film, you know, like your scenes, you know, and there's not a ton of them, but with Belinda Belaski, is that how you pronounce her last yeah. name? Yeah. Love. She's lovely. It's, she doesn't have a huge part, but she's wonderful in the film and the wonderful character actors, you know, and Patrick Mee, Kevin McCarthy, John Carradine. Slim, yeah. like, it goes on and on. Like, and I was curious watching you in the film recently, Early on in your career, when you got the chance to work off some of those great character actors, did you ever earn, like, little tricks from those guys? Did you ever see little things that they didn't go, oh, I got to put that in my toolbox? No. No? No, I, and I'm kind of ashamed to say that, but not really. <laughs> I, Kevin, I trusted my method and way of working so much. That is not to say that we didn't sit around the fire and tell stories and they told us all the stories of, you know, yeah, coming up in the business and everything. So, yeah, but, I'm sure John Carradine would have had some good stories to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. All of them. All yeah. Of them. Wonderful. And Kevin McCarthy yeah. was just the sweetest, gentlest, man to work with. I really loved working with him. There's another person I want to talk about who I think is sort of in in the in the film business. These these people tend to get kind of 
skipped over by fans and audiences. And to me and to you, we kind of know them as the unsung heroes. In this case, it's Dan Black, who you also worked with on Cujo. And the kind of alchemy of a great producer is not something that everyone really understands, I don't think. But what is it to you that makes for a great producer? Mm. Somebody who cares, somebody who respects you, somebody who has a very clear vision and brings together. Dan was a genius at bringing together talented people who were just on the verge, right? Just on the verge of making Right there, yeah. Yeah. And I just felt like, I felt like he was a father figure to me when I worked with him. I could go to him about anything. He listened. I remember he came to me in Cujo and he said, you know, Dee, that scene where Danny loses it and then you lose it and say, oh, get you your father. He said, you know, we saw that in the dailies. We think maybe it's too much. We think we should cut it that the audience won't like you. Won't like you. Yeah. Could you come look at it? And I went and looked at it and I looked at Dan and I said, Dan, if you cut that scene, you're crazy. There is yeah. not a parent in the world that has not felt that, yeah. maybe not acted on it, but there's not a parent that has not felt that emotion. And do you know, he listened yeah, and he kept it in. And that was one of the scenes that was most talked about by the critics. Awesome. That's amazing. Um, I thought I'd just comment before we move on to your next project that you made for about the cutest werewolf ever at the end there. I know. Was Bambi that a werewolf. Bambi and, werewolf. Cutest werewolf I've ever seen. Animatronic. Nose. Adorable. Uh, for some reason, I had it in my contract that my character would never be seen as a werewolf. Don't ask me why. I should say why. It's important <laughs> back then. Uh, <laughs> So afterwards, uh, I was shooting Cujo, and Joe called me, and he said, so, Dee, we've been showing the film, you know, and all the cards keep coming back. We want to see her as a werewolf. We want to see her. I said, okay, but I'm shooting Cujo. Well, we don't need you. We just need your permission. I said, why do you need my permission? Well, it's in your contract. I said, Joe, I don't know why it's in my contract. But it's fine with me. Just could you make her just a little bit more vulnerable because she's fought against it so hard? Yeah. So they came up with this Bambi werewolf. Did, was that a uh, Rob Bottin did it, right? Rob and Joe. Yeah. Yeah. The amazing Rob Bottin. The incredible yeah, Rob Bottin. Boy, he was on that yeah. set every minute working with. The, the better angle here and the lights better there. And let me spritz this. And yeah, I mean, I didn't get into like the transformation because like, it's, you know, it, it's talked about in so many places, but I mean, it's incredible. And of course, Rob's work in the film is just yeah, amazing. amazing. Well, it wouldn't, so be, it wouldn't be the film that Rob. Exactly. 
Totally. Yeah. And it's so funny because, I mean, they, you know, it's made so close to American Werewolf in London. And those two films are thought of as the two great werewolf movies of all time. Ours is better. <laughs> I, 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 I totally agree. Yeah. Don't, te- don't tell him I said that. Um, Cujo, 1983. Now, was this your first shoot after E.T.? Yeah. Okay, so you're coming right after the success of E.T. How did the success of E.T. immediately affect your career? Like right after the movie came out and was a big hit, what was the what was the immediate sort of reaction in your career? I don't know how to answer that. I it, have, are you going through diplomacy thinking right now? Yeah. yeah. I, uh, it seemed like I w- had a lot of interest uh, in a lot of things that never followed through. And then Dan... Um, called me about Cujo. I read Cujo and I went, oh my God, I would die to do this part. I can't imagine any leading lady actress would not want to tackle this part. And yeah. I said, but you know, Dan, I, 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 can't, I don't do nudity because the whole love scene was written as a nude scene. Okay. He said, oh, no, 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 no. Um, you don't have to do it nude. And by the way, we want to hire Chris for your lover. Again, I had not said anything. No, you guys said Dan Rufin for you at this point. You knew and what I, he had. And I said, oh, my God, I'm in. I'm, I'm so in. I just know her. I know everything about her. I could feel every emotion when I read the script. Had you read the book? <clears throat> no, I had not no. at that time. And and I'm glad. Right. I'm glad because it's very different. Yes, it really. is. Yeah. Uh, and I just, you know, I I was raised for all practical purposes by a very strong single mother who against all odds raised three incredible successful children uh, on her own. I, I know Donna. I just know her. I know what drove her. Yeah. And and I didn't have any kids at the time when I did Cujo. But after I had Gabrielle, there's nothing I wouldn't do to defend that kid. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing on this earth. So it's one of those. It's one of those movies where I, I when the first time I saw it, I remember thinking when it was over, and I had I, I put off watching it for a long time, as much as I loved you and Stephen King, and I remember it was one of those movies that I didn't watch till later in my life because I I knew the dog stuff would be upsetting. I'm an animal freak and i was like so am I I. yeah i was like i don't know how i'm gonna manage th- i know there's gonna be that a horrible dog so. search question yeah <laughs> how are the dogs gonna be taken care of and nothing has to you know happen to the dog because yeah. i did a lot of work for actors and others for animals let me tell you kevin those dogs were taken better care of than i was <laughs> i'm not kidding well it's like they that is breaks. the I did. Yeah, but don't you think it's a funny thing when you look at a film like you take a film like Cujo or a lot of different horror films and you watch how an audience will respond? They can 
absolutely, they'll root for people to get killed. You kill a dog or an animal and people will fucking hate the movie. They'll walk off. They'll, yeah. you just, it's such a weird thing. <laughs> and that's exactly what I said. I said, Dan, you cannot kill the dog at the end of this movie. At least half the people that come to see this movie won't have read the book. Right. Yeah. You know, and you cannot in this day and age, or even now, by the way, yeah, you cannot put people through almost two hours of trauma with no payoff. Yeah. You know? And yeah. so when the movie came out, Stephen King called Dan Blatt and said, Thank God you didn't kill the kid. Oh my God. Yeah. He never yeah. got more hate mail in his life than when he killed the kid at the end of the He has said that, that, uh, that, that was a mistake in the book and that the movie did that right. And I absolutely agree. That would have been like, because th the movie is not fun. It's not like one of those movies where you're like having a good time. Like it's, it's torturous. Like it's, it's really done. <laughs> but some horror films are, are like, you know, like the howling is fun. You watch the howling and the scares have a certain kind of there's a, a, a giggle that comes after them. There's no yeah. giggles no. in in Cujo. Dear God. Like Tell and me. you even look at the character you played like the character of Donna Trent that you play. I was watching the film. Again, like my husband hadn't seen, I'm showing it to him, and he goes, This is such an interesting character. And I said, It it is because as my husband pointed out, like, she's not intrinsically that likable at first. She isn't a character that right from the get-go, we're like, what a sweet lady. Like, she's she's complicated, and she's going through yeah. things, and she's... And I'm and I, like around with my husband. And he, who's a lovely guy. That's I always thought, and I think that's great writing, too, is that... Um, uh, what's Daniel Hu Kelly? Is that the actor who played yeah. your husband? And he's yeah. lovely in the film. Um, they didn't make him, like, a jerk or something, so that we were like, oh, well, you know, he deserves... It. Like, we feel, I feel, feel bad for the guy. He does. He's, he seems like a good dude. And your character is, you know, but she's she's complicated. And I love that about the character. And I think that by the time we get to where the film goes with her, where she's trapped in the car with this child and there's this dog trying to destroy them and it's merciless and it's painful and it's, it's just like, I think it wouldn't have worked if she was just like a cute, nice girl. I don't. I just don't think it would have felt. Well, you wouldn't have bought it at all. She had, no, she had to have chops. You know. Yeah, we had. And, yeah, we had to believe and her. The dog had to be so relentless and so awful that by the time of the movie, you're saying, "God, shoot the dog! Don't let yeah. him, let him yeah. get to the kid!" Right? Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, totally. it wouldn't have worked. No, it's true. Cause if, if we didn't feel that, it's that thing again of where we would have still, and you know what? It's funny because even though when the dog dies at the end, you're like, well, he had to. I still had that one of, aww. <laughs> I still did that when the dog died. Dear God, Kevin. Let me tell you that the trainer took such good care of those dogs. He even slept in the barn with them. Well, they're, they're, I love St. Bernard's too. They're a beautiful oh, yeah. dog. And they were all trained to go after toys, you know. I read that. Yeah. yeah. So that's they like, were all I, I, to go after toys. We actually had to tie their tails down because they were wet this, all the time. I noticed there's a shot in the film where I, where it looks like the dog's tail is tied down. Cause it's sort of like this. It's, yeah. is that they touch its leg or something? Is that what they would do? Yeah. 
because <laughs> we left it in in a couple of shots because it was kind of menacing. But, right. You know, it, they were. It was all big games to them. Yeah. So the trainer would take the toy and put it like on the seat and show the dog you can't go around to get your toy. You have to get up on the window to get your toy. And on action, <laughs> right? The they call action and the trainer would go, "Get get rid of that toy!" <laughs> And you and know, the dog would go so crazy. It, it took a lot of focus and concentration for the actors to stay in the emotion while all of this hoopla was going on yeah, with the dog. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, when I was watching the film, your performance in it is at, at spellbinding. It's one of those performances that an actor gives where I'm look at it and I'm like, I don't even, I can't even imagine what it takes to, to get to that place. Um, I think it's one of your greatest performances. Um, My favorite. My favorite. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's just like it. And it's such a, there's so much there. I mean, you got to do everything with her. She was such a, and I'm wondering like if by the time it was finished, were you as exhausted as I would imagine you would have been? They treated me for exhaustion for three weeks really? afterwards. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm still on uh, uh, adrenal supplements because I totally blew out my adrenals. Wow. Your body and your brain doesn't know you're acting. They just yeah. know you're in fight or flight for 10 weeks. Yeah. And I think it's great, too. Like, Louis Teague, the, the director, like who I think is... A director is maybe a bit underestimated. Like I, I, I he's, totally. he's because he's a the, he's a brilliant director. Um, you know, th th there's some of those shots in the car. Like, what a challenge when you're shooting at so much of a film in a Pinto. Like, really, you know what I mean? And, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, just it's John amazing. Dupont, he and the cinematographer, yes, Dupont really another very really accomplished really filmmaker. Yeah, just created some. You know, they came up. I remember the moment they came up with the shot, well, let's drill a hole in Spinning. the top of the, yeah, and spin the yeah. camera, and it's really effective. Yeah, my, my turn to me and goes, how did they do that? And I was like, I imagine there was like a rig through the car, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, so I want, there, like, I was looking too, and Cujo is also, I think, one of the most critically well-received of your of your films. Like here's a couple uh, amazing quotes. This one says, it is, if it is possible for a horror movie to be too good, if it is, then Cujo is it. It borders on unbearably intense. Wow. That's a nice quote. Yeah. Unbearably intense. Totally yeah. agree with that. Another one. The performances are simple and entirely effective, particularly Miss Wallace's. That's Janet Maslin of the New York Times. Wow. And, and then wow. perhaps the highest praise anyone can get who works in the horror genre is Stephen King, who stated that your performance is the best of any film or TV adaptation based on his work. How did you feel when you first heard that Stephen King said that? You know, he just did another interview on King's World and talked about how I should have gotten the Academy Award. And I it just really humbles me uh, to know that I represented 
something that was a part of him and a part of his creativity in a way that he really appreciated it. Uh, I'm just really honored. We'll be back to the show in a moment. If you love what we're doing on Spill Your Guts, we could use your support helping to bring you more conversations with horror's icons, celebrities, creatives, and genre-defining artists. Please show your support by contributing whatever you can on our Patreon page. You can find us at www.patreon.com forward slash spillyourguts. All one word. If memberships are your thing, be sure to subscribe to our channel for exclusive bonus content, contests, and giveaways. Also, Please check us out on all the major social media channels for all things SYG. Thank you for listening, and now, let's get back to it. We're going to do a little exercise here. Okay? Oh, you ready? Here we go. I'm so I sent you these things. I'm just telling you, Brent. It's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. fine. So I sent you two little snippets of dialogue, okay? They're, one is from a Hallmark film, and the other is from a horror film. So what I want to do here is we're going to flip the intention. For the first quote, I want you to read the first line of dialogue as though it's a genre film. This is a horror film. You're playing an evil, nasty character. This is your dialogue, okay? For I this person. You. I hate you. No, you got this. I you hate this. you. You've got this. It's going to be amazing. Okay, you ready? And action. Don't cry, honey! Santa just wants you to be healthy. Who knows mortal humans can't survive on cookies and milk like him. He cares about you, Santa. You know Santa loves you and... Okay, why don't you dig? Dig down deep in that stocking. Really search around with your hand and... Awesome. Amazing. I loved it. That was great. That was really good. That was really good. Dude. That was amazing. Thank you. Just Kevin. for a cold for a cold read. Incredible. Okay. Now the next one, which is from a horror film, you listeners out there might be able to guess which one it is. I want you to do this one like it's a Hallmark Christmas movie. So it's 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 festive and it's sweet and it's mistletoe. I know and... what Hallmark Christmas movies are. I have a many yeah, yeah. on. <laughs> All right, ready? And action. Oh, I want you to make a choice. <laughs> There's a slow-acting poison coursing through your system, which only I have the antidote for. Well, will you murder a stranger to save yourself, honey? Listen carefully, if you will. Oh, there are rules. Come on, let, let the game begin cut that was just amazing <laughs> wonderful so i want to talk about the frighteners okay. which is one of my favorites of of your films i love the frighteners uh you made it in 1996 with the great peter jackson yeah now i read that peter jackson initially offered you the part because he kind of wanted to lull people into a sense of safety because they thought of you as this warm nurturing lady because of the mom in et and that was sort of he thought he could play on that for the twist that happens with the character Patricia. Did he? Is that is that correct? Did he? I have no that idea. 
Yeah, I, I'm honest. I have no idea. He never spoke to me about that. I went to Universal and auditioned for it. Okay. And um, so this might be one of those cases where the internet's lying to me. Up on the stage, no. It may not be lying. It may just be a piece of information that I don't know. But I went and Michael J. Fox came in at the last minute. And, you know, I'm a dancer. So I threw myself against the wall and slid down it and did all that stuff in the first scene. And I mean, I just went for it, you know, and and I finished and. Peter said, that was great, Dee. And I said, yeah, please don't think of me as this cute little blonde. Think of me with <laughs> with a dark wig or something with yeah. long hair, which is what we ended up with. And and they hired me pretty much right after I left. So I think it's wonderful that Peter Jackson like was was like, I'm gonna cast D. Wallace as something that people never would think of her as. You know what I, mean? I, love I love that. Her. Yeah, that's always such a treat. And it, it does, he, you know, if that's true, that thing about E.T. and stuff, it's brilliant because it, the first time I, I remember the first time I saw the film, it does do that. It does have that thing where you're like, wait, no, D can't be that character because she's, I, these are the kinds of characters I've seen her play so much. I want, she, I'm used to this thing. And then it's not that thing. And it sort of makes that twist that much more impactful. And I'm also curious, like, that's the last film that Michael J. Fox did. Um, what yeah, was your experience was like working with him? The beginning of his Parkinson's. And okay. he didn't know really what was going on with him. He traveled back and forth, I know, to see his doctors. Um, yeah. So that's why. Right. What was your experience like working with Michael J. Fox? You know, I only had one scene with him. Okay. Fortunately. Yeah. Uh, sweet guy. Very sweet guy. Um, did a lovely donation. You know, Christopher, my husband, died during that film. Um, boy, that was, that was a surreal time in my life. I... He had a heart attack. They flew me back. He appeared to be fine. He said, go on back. They're waiting for you to finish shooting. I was back four days. He died of a blood clot. My little girl found him. And um, and so I flew back again and put on his service. And then I flew back to finish. Wow. <laughs> so I was back and forth across half the world uh, four times in about two and a half weeks. I didn't know whether I was coming or going, Kevin. And Peter was like there for you? He Peter like Jackson? I'll I'll tell you a story which sums up who Peter is. So I kept saying, well, do you do you need a charge card or how can don't worry, we'll settle up at the end because it was a lot of airfare. And I went in to settle up at the end, which pretty much would have probably been my entire salary. And uh, the bookkeeper said, no, 
uh, Peter said to tell you this is his gift to you. He's he's taking care of this for you. That's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it really speaks to the kind of man he is. And I saw it uh, the whole time working on the set. From, and his wife worked on that picture with yeah, him, right? Fran Walsh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, from a producer down to a best boy, if somebody had an issue they needed to address, Peter sat down at lunch with him, and it was addressed. Well, so yeah. everybody was very respected and and honored. And, you know, back to my family, that means the world to me. How did you, I'm curious, like you went through this tragic thing in the middle of shooting, you know, this movie that's, you know, it's got some levity, but it's a pretty dark movie. Like how did you find it, the energy to just keep going when you were going through such a tragic loss? Because I was taught to. Yeah. My mother not only taught me verbally that you keep going, she modeled that to me uh, when my father committed suicide. And, you know, I think she took three days off and had to go back to work. Yeah. It was just, and, and I've taught my daughter that. Uh, we were doing a film together and uh, she got the news that my younger brother had committed suicide. So she drove out and I saw her pull up and I thought, oh, how sweet. Gabrielle's coming to pick me up to go to the set together. And she came in and told me and we held each other and we cried and we called the family. And two, day, two, uh, two hours later, we were on the set shooting. Wow. I mean, it's it's. It makes me think of when you and I were shooting Lineage Show, the short that we that we did together. I remember I was so overwhelmed at that time because, um, you know, I had this for the first time I, I was shooting in Hollywood and I had this incredible, wonderful producer and cinematographer and Dean Cundy and I had all these wonderful actors. And so but I was also it was the first time I thought I was like, I have to really step it up because this is the real deal here. Like I'm not just working with friends and stuff. And I remember when you arrived on set, <coughs> excuse me, and you came up to me and you sort of pulled me aside. And you and I were friends already at this point. And you pulled me aside and you said, you got this. And I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was just like, I don't know. I must've been a bit of a deer in headlights. And you just, you just, you like made me center in and you're like, you've got this. And I was like, Okay. And then we started shooting and we did that scene with you and Michael Truco in the kitchen. And I was so like pleased with it. And we, and I just went, was ready to move on to the next shot. And you pulled me over and I was like, Oh fuck, what did I do? <laughs> and you said, did you like it? And I went, I thought it was, it was great. And you were like, well, tell me then. And I was like, Oh shit. Like I forgot to say how great it was. And you're like, yeah, I want to know. And I was like, Oh, I just assumed that like, you know, you'd only want to know if there was something like wrong. And you're oh, like, no, no I actors are kids, honey. <laughs> yeah. Tell me I'm a good little girl. Will you, daddy? Well, you know? it was like that. Yeah, it was like that thing, though, where it's like it was so wonderful when you're in that space, you know, where you're you're 
where you're there and you, you should be able to play it all that, but you're so in your head that you're forgetting that that's yeah, the space sure. you're in. And to have someone there that says to you, hey, remember, you can play here and let's talk and let's figure this out. And let's, you know, that was so special to me at that time. And I can see that, like, I guess that's a theme that's reoccurred really for you in your career and in your work. And to be able to teach it and pass it on must be very uh, meaningful. You got to pass it on. You know, what's life about if, if you can't pass? I, I had an AD on a film who's also an actor and just booked a part. And I spent a half an hour with him going over stuff the other day because, because that's who I am and that's what I think we should do. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's like, I mean, it was great. I, I, I went back to the Frighteners before we were going to talk and it's so fun when you get to revisit someone's work and that's part of the fun of the, the doing this show yeah. is you know getting to go back and watching the film and you know you and i would have to say jeffrey combs too who just oh kind of, my god brilliant jeff is is unstoppable in the frighteners he's wonderful brilliant. i remember you and i going to see his play years ago when he yeah. played Jean poe he was yeah he's such a wonderful actor um did you guys have scenes together in the frighteners okay i don't think so I don't think so either. Yeah, Jeff, I don't think so either. Jack B uh, Busey and I. Yeah, most of your scenes were Jake. Yeah. Jake, sorry. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, after, well, we were, we were in the wardrobe and we were talking about how my look progressed once I... Um, got taken over by Jake again. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And their idea was that I aged a lot. And all of a sudden I went, no, I get younger. I get younger oh, because yeah. I'm infused with, with that energy and that. Yeah. And Fran looked at me and she went, oh my God. Yes. Yeah, totally. Yes. Totally. Totally. And, and so we went with it. And thank God, you know, I had, yeah. again, people who respected me and listened to my input. Yeah. I, yeah. I think so, so much of TV right now needs more of that. Right. You know, we need more of allowing actors, especially the guest stars, to, <laughs> to be free enough to put in their input because that's when the magic happens. Whenever yeah, it seems great. It seems crazy to me. Like I think about the short that you and I did together and all the wonderful people on it. And I hope that when we did that, 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 that I was that way, because I've always thought, you know, you bring on these wonderfully talented people and right, if you've you done your job, right. If you've done your job, right it shouldn't be that hard once you get to set in that sense. Yeah. And it, and that's how it fell on that shoot to me. I, I had fun and it wasn't that hard because I was in great hands. I had a wonderful crew and a wonderful cast and we trusted each other and it was only a two day shoot, but it just yeah. worked out. You yeah. know what I mean? I For think sure. that came from everybody was there to, to work and to play together. And, yeah. you know, and I think that's, if you cast right, you're an idiot. If you're not you're you know, listening there, if you cast it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about there's, uh, we're almost, uh, we're almost yeah. done here, but I wanted to talk about 
two things. The Plague, which you did in 2006. And The Plague is a film I think is really underrated. I think it's a really atmospheric, haunting film. And I went into a bit of research about The Plague because The Plague is a movie that people that I've talked to that are sort of genre writers and people like that have also agreed with me. It's kind of like an underrated film. But I realized as I kind of delved into it, it was also a film that was tampered with. That in, I don't know if it was post or with, but but that Hal Masonberg yeah. kind of like his vision was pretty compromised on that oh, project. So much. Yeah. Do you remember kind of you know what happened well, from the film Hal's you shot a, to the film? Hal's a friend of mine, and there was just there was just a real battle to keep his vision. They wanted to make it kind of more of a slasher. Mm-hmm. From what I remember, I could be remembering incorrectly, but um, that's what I remember about it. And I remember he, he was hugely disappointed um, that they didn't keep his vision. Yeah, it's one of those things like, yeah, you know, I think the film is still, you know, it's, it's, a, it, I don't think it's been, I don't know if a lot of people have seen it. People are listening, check it out, The Plague. Uh, James Vanderbeek is wonderful and another underrated actor, in my opinion. I think he's great in the film. I think you're great in the film. You have this heartbreaking, it's a small role, but it's devastating. Um, so you listeners out there, go check out The Plague. Uh, and that brings us to Rob Zombie and your work with Rob Zombie. The amazing. It's hard to talk about my horror films without, first of all, I absolutely adore Rob. I love him as a director. I love him as a person. I think he's multi-talented in so many different ways. And, um, you know, Rob calls and says, you want to do this, D? And I go, yep, I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I was watching your work with Rob. And it's, you know, Rob Zombie, I think, like most good directors, has a very specific quality in his work. And, you you know, when, you, when a Rob Zombie movie comes on, you know it's a Rob Zombie movie. His signature is all over it. And... I was curious when I was watching it, like, is that something for you as an actor? Like, does Rob have an approach to filmmaking when you're working with them where you're you're where you're all like, this is a Rob Zombie shoot through and through? Like, is there a style that he brings to the set or to your relationship with him as an actor well, and director that's succinctly yeah. Rob Zombie? Bring in every idea you've got, which I, right. you know, he just gives you, he knows exactly what he wants and he gives you total freedom to play within those those things. Uh, I mean, in Halloween, uh, we were working with three cameras, which I loved, and uh, we we did it for the script. And then he said, "Okay, everybody, just bring in your best shit. Let's have some fun." <laughs> and all the stuff with the bagels and all that. All yeah, that yeah. was improv. All that was, you know. I I just you know when when I did um uh the scene where I die going down the bookcase yes and um they called me 3 weeks later and they said we need you back again I said I've already died they said yeah but Rob wants to kill you better <laughs> <laughs> so he does that he's he's always thinking and always reworking and do I need a little something here? Do I need a little something there? You know? Yeah, it's interesting to me. It's interesting to me, like, you know, you've worked with 
so many great genre film directors and we've talked about quite a few of them in this in this conversation you know and of course rob is one of them but is there like a common trait or quality that you've observed in in genre and the great genre filmmakers that you've worked with um in all the great directors period that i've worked with the common trait is they're organized they know exactly what they want. They have a vision. And then they let go and let everybody, the cinematographer, the actors, the editor, everybody come in with ideas so that you have the freedom of everybody's creativity instead of the freedom of three people or one person. Right. It's funny because people uh, that that aren't fans of the genre will ask me of, of the genre of filmmakers, the established ones that I've met or worked with. You know, are they really dark? Are they intense? Are they you know this or that? I'm like, no. I've found that much more when I worked with TV directors and comedy directors. <laughs> Horror directors are usually yeah. some of the most chill people that I've encountered yeah. as far as You're filmmakers right. go. You're right on that. I would agree with that. So I also want to talk before we uh, jump off here about your work as a healer and as an author. Um, something that's really important and special for me personally, because when you and I first met, which is uh, it's, uh, it's like 18 years ago, I started working with you in that capacity where, where you started to teach me about uh, creation and healing life. work. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I remember reading your book Conscious Creation, and it was a game changer for me as a as an artist and as a person, just as a a person who wanted to kind of not be stuck the way that I felt stuck at yeah. that time. And so I I think um, you know I want to ask you like it, for you and your journey as an actor, and then in your journey as a healer. How do you see the two connected? What what part of you, how do they bond together to make sort of D? Well, everything's creation. Life is creation, Kevin. We're creating ourselves every moment. So I create me um, doing everything I love to do and reaching people touching people, affecting people. That's what I do in everything that I do. Um, this book, Born, I wrote this book. <laughs> I wrote this book during the pandemic. Uh, the channel said to me, I'm a clear audience channel and the channel said to me get up every day and say okay what can i create today instead of oh my god there's a pandemic so yeah. one day i got up and i said all right what i can what can i create today and i heard write the book not a book the book the book and it had occurred to me um uh, over the last year because i you know i do thousands of private sessions a year. Uh, and I've been doing this healing work, uh, most people don't know, for 30 years. And it occurred to me that everybody was studying it, everybody was reading about it, everybody was going to workshops about it. 
but they weren't living it. And if you don't live it, your life doesn't change exponentially. So I wrote the book, which is literally a formula, step by step by step, on how to create anything you want. Money, health, relationships in your life, everything. There's just a few simple principles that if you put them all in place, they work. And then you magnetize to you the things that you want, like ET. I didn't even audition for ET. But I was in alignment with bringing it to me. I had six specialists tell me I'd never have a kid. But I was in alignment and I held my focus and I stayed in my knowing. And now she's 33 and my best friend. And she's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> she is a force yeah. to be reckoned with. For oh, sure. yeah. She's a powerhouse for sure. Absolutely. And a, and a wonderfully creative person. Beautiful and then I, yeah. I wrote to uh, my children's book, Bubbleopaloo. I've tried to say that about three times and I don't think I've gotten it right yet. So thank you. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Adults have so much trouble. And Do it for kids, me again. Kids just say it like that. Bubbleopaloo. Bubbleopaloo? Bubbleopaloo. There we go. Okay, I got it. Bubbleopaloo. Okay. And um, because our brains around our self-esteem and how we see ourselves in the world, which enables us to create totally locked in by eight years old so whatever yeah. you're taught or modeled between conception to eight you build the rest of your life on that belief system so this is the first in a series of books teaching kids how what they are what what the principles are and in a really fun way, how to apply them in their lives. But for people like that don't know about your work as a healer and don't, and haven't read any of your work, it you know what what would be sort of the simplest way to describe to people who might go, oh, is this some sort of like you know what I mean? There's a cynicism people have when I when I've tried to tell them about the work that you and I've done together. I'm like, no, this isn't like some culty, weird, religious fanaticism -y thing, you know, and people okay, bring that. So to the most of my work is based in brain science. What people, and that's the strength of born because I show how religion, brain science, and spirituality, they're all saying the same thing. Right. Uh, they're all saying the same thing. Know what you want. And most people don't, they think they do but they have yeah. not ever really said, this is what I'm creating and I'm committed to it. If you don't do that, your brain cannot focus on creating it for you. And we are electrical beings. We measure our hearts through electrocardiograms, our brains through electroencephalograms. So every thought and feeling we have shoots out a frequency into the universe, which is an electromagnetic universe. So basically, we send out a signal 
the universe magnetizes and matches it and sends it back to us as the reality of our life. So if you're sending out a bunch of negative shit about yourself, you're going to get a lot of negative <laughs> shit back. Yeah. Bottom right. line. If you're, I remember you, you, one of the first things you said to me when you and I were getting to become friends and get to know each other was, if you keep telling yourself that you can't do something, then you won't be able to do that. Yep. Because and and that is a direction to energy. And energy must have a direction. And if you aren't giving it consciously, it will take it from your childhood fears or old religious beliefs or... God forbid the internet or social media, <laughs> right? Yeah. You you have to choose. That's what I mean. You have to choose who you are and what you are creating you to be. And then it all starts to open up. But I talk all about that. I want porn. available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. D, I want to leave off. I want I wanted to ask you, you know, this Everybody's been through a lot, I think, in the last few years with COVID and, you know, with what's going on in our world politically. And, you know, it can be a tough time to be optimistic and to create. What would you say to people who right now who are trying to create but feel stuck in in the traumas of, you know, everything that we've all been through? I would say you're using the pandemic as an excuse. Sorry. Uh it's like using your childhood as an excuse. Whatever happened to you, who, whomever left you. Guys, it's what you do with, it's what you do with what you're given. Okay, so the whole world has been in lockdown. I have to tell you, the last chapter of Born, my channel said, I want you to go right down in the last chapter everything you created each month. I was astounded, Kevin. I was astounded at how much I did. But then I never gave myself the direction, oh, the world's so hard and the studios are closed and, and you know, how am I going to make a living? I just kept saying, okay, what can I create? Because yeah. our brains are like computers. If you don't put in what you want, you're not going to find the answer. That's wonderful. Uh, thank you, Dee, for coming on the show and talk to us about your incredible work, uh, both as a healer, as a, an actor that I think has had a huge impression on a lot of people. And, um, I wondered, is there any, do you have a project coming up that you want to mention or anything? Oh my gosh, the I have so many things. I, I just completed five films. So <laughs> that's what I mean. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I had somebody interview me last week that said, wow, you know, a lot of women your age aren't working. I said, yes, but I have no belief in that. Yeah, you don't. When I looked up your IMDb to prepare for this interview, I was like, holy shit, how did yeah. I do this? It's like 200 and something credits. I was Usually I try to watch as much as I can of someone's work before I interview them. I knew in me, I was like, well, that's going to be impossible. We're just going to have to hone in on some of the particulars. So I just particulars. Uh, finished a sci-fi film. I yeah. finished a wonderful romantic comedy. 
I finished a great family film, and I just finished another horror film. There's one you're getting me a clip for. What's what's that project? Uh, it's called Pitchfork, and it's a bunch of vignettes that uh, horror vignettes that fit together. Yeah, it's. They said they'd have it for you this week, Kev. Amazing! Um, I can't wait. But it's a vastly interesting uh, story about a doppelganger. Do you know what that is? Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah. Okay. A double. A double, right. Yeah. Of this little girl uh, who takes over this little girl and what happens to the family. And it's, it's very disturbing, but, uh, and, uh, and I play the grandma. I don't know. I seem to go between grandmas and moms a lot these days. So. <laughs> well, again, listeners, the book is born. It's Dee Wallace, the wonderful, the beautiful, the inspiring Dee Wallace. Thank you, Dee, for coming on the oh, show. I love you, Kev. It's been fun. I love you. Yeah, it has been. I hope you'll come back again in the near future and we can we can dig in some more. Okay. All righty. Bye, Dee. I love you. Bye. I love you, too. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane and produced by Cindy McLean. Production editing and sound design provided by Blaine Swanson and One House Studio. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork created by Matthew Terrian. Our supervising producer is Jason Hill. For exclusive bonus content, giveaways, and contests, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com forward slash spillyourguts. All one word. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by our supporters and listeners like you. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of Kevin's conversations with some of horror culture's titans of terror as well as the many hours of bonus content, consider subscribing to our channel. But that's not the only way you can support what we do. If you like what you hear and you want more, get the word out to your friends, your family, random people on the street, retail cashiers, unattended children, that hot guy you work with, on-duty members of law enforcement, anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for the guts and gore of horror. This has been Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.